Welcome to Providence Road. We are really glad that you're here with us this morning. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we're honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning worshiping uh, with us. We're continuing on in our series where we're walking through the book of John. We find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 13, which we talked about last week is a bit of a pivot point in this book. Things really slow down, and we, we kind of are, are, are looking towards the cross at this point. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, as we um, come into this place today, and we've, we've sung, and you've been our, our focus this morning, I pray that you would continue to be our focus as we open your word. The scriptures that where, where you reveal yourself to us in. And we're so thankful that you reveal yourself to us. And I pray this morning as we uh, listen and learn and sit under um, your teaching in the word, I pray that you would change us. You would change the way we think. You would change um, what we desire, what we feel, and you would change the way we live when we leave this place. Help us, Lord. I pray that your spirit would move today and that you would change us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're starting in chapter 13, verse 1. I want to read verse 1, and this will intro us into this passage well. John says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This begins what commentators and theologians refer to as the farewell discourse. John 13 through chapter 17, this is the farewell discourse. These are the, the final words um, of Jesus to his disciples before the cross. And you notice here, if, especially if you've been following along and, and, and seeing John and his writing style, it changes here. John slows down. There's more descriptors. There's more participles in the grammar that communicate intimacy, like having loved. Jesus knowing was going back to God. And the setting changes as well. Imagine the disciples there with Jesus kind of all along following him around. And, and, and there's been a lot of excitement, a lot of crowds, a lot of kind of hoopla surrounding Jesus. People following him when he know there's been arguments. There's been religious leaders pressing in on Jesus and arguing with him. But now in chapter 13, you move out of, out of the hustle and bustle of the streets and you, you move into a quiet room. What is often referred to as the upper room. One commentator says, the noise of the cosmos has died away. The stillness of night prevails. I want you to imagine Jesus' closest disciples now in a room, alone, quiet. The Son of Man, the God of the universe, in a quiet room around a table with his disciples. And he's preparing them. He's preparing them for what's to come can imagine that if you had just, this is hours before he would be arrested and go to the cross, right? You can imagine if you knew you only had hours left to live, how would you spend that time if you knew that, right? Probably saying the things that are the most important to you to the people that are closest to you. This is exactly what Jesus did. He was preparing his disciples. He was preparing them for when he was going to leave. He didn't want this to shock them because at this point, they really don't know exactly what's going to happen. He's preparing them. He's preparing them for the mission 
that lies before them after he would ascend back to heaven. If you think about it, these were the leaders of the first churches that were started in the New Testament. These are the churches that we, through the Spirit, trace our heritage back to 2,000 years later. You can say this church planting movement began right here, you could say. And Jesus also knows that he would be betrayed by Judas. He knows it's coming. And the scripture even uses that word betrayal. Not just he would be harmed or somebody would do something bad to him, but when you use that word betrayal, it's heavy. It's weighty. And this is what the word that John uses. And he wants to communicate to the disciples that he knows it's coming. This isn't catching him off guard. He knows Judas is going to betray him. And remember, Judas is in the room right now with him. He's one of the 12 right now. And he, but he knows the Father's purpose. He knows God the Father's purpose in, for the betrayal, which we're going to take a closer look at next week. But he wants them to know that. He's like, guys, I know it's coming. When it does come, it didn't catch me off guard. And even when Jesus knew he was hours away from his arrest, his torture, and death, he still loves his disciples. You can imagine John, again, writing probably 50 to 60 years after these events. John wrote this, and he's thinking back to it. And he writes there at the, the, in, in, in verse 1, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John, thinking back to the love that he's like, yeah, this, this man loved us. He loved us to the end. He didn't just love us when things were convenient. He loved us Right before, he continued that, right before he was to go and be tortured and face death on the cross, he still loves his disciples. He didn't let that get in the way or distract him. He didn't go off by himself right now to, to deal with it. He spent time with his disciples. That's how much he loved them. And for us, that love rests on us. Those of us who, are, who have put our faith and trust in him, that love also rests on us. Here's the main idea of this passage. Jesus gives us one of the greatest acts of humility that, we, that the world has ever seen. And then he tells us to go and do likewise. That's it. He gives us one of the greatest acts of humility, of service, the world has ever seen. And then he says, go and do likewise. So we're going to walk through um, this passage really with three main ideas. First, we're going to see that Jesus serves. Number two, we see that Jesus calls us to serve. And then we see that the way Jesus serves actually gives us the ability to serve or to live out the calling he has given us. So let's look at number one, Jesus serves. Verse two, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, we'll stop there for a second, listen, don't miss what verse 3 is saying. Don't miss what verse 3 is saying. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows everything that's about to come, and he also knows that God in his sovereignty has given all things into his hands. Think about those two things. Jesus has ultimate control of the situation. He has all the power in the world. He could have stopped it. He knows how this is going to turn out. He was God. He was from God. He was going back to God. That language of the Trinity there. And yet he still is willing to lay down his life. First by serving them in this way. 
And then also in a few hours going to the cross. It's mind-blowing that Jesus had all, had been given all things. All authority had been given into his hands, all power, and yet he still serves and lays down his life. And Jesus had a unique relationship with power, right? Oftentimes when we think of power in our world, we think of it as a negative thing. Well, it's actually not negative, it's neutral. Power is a neutral thing. It it all depends on what the person who has the power actually does with his or her power, right? Jesus had all the power at this moment, all the authority, and he chose to lay it down. He chose to to use that power to benefit others, to use that power to see the other people around him flourish and not himself. How often in our world do we see people with power, leaders with power, actually abuse that power, actually use that power to build up themselves, build up their own reputation, build up their own cause, use that in their self for their own selfish gain. Yet Jesus gives us the perfect example of how to use power. He knows it. He knows, he knows he has all authority, and yet then he lays it down. Verse 4, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, remember that, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, foot washing, this practice, was, was, was not uncommon. Right? It wasn't uncommon. People did that pretty consistently back in the day, but when it happened, it would always happen when people would come into a house or whatever place they were coming to, right? It makes sense. Like you would, you would greet someone in that way, or you would do that yourself when you walked into a house. But Jesus stops dinner to actually wash the disciples. So he, was, he was making a point. He wanted to differentiate this, pract- the, the, this serving that he was going to do from the common practice. So he does this in the middle of dinner. And this was a gross thing he did, right, to wash feet. Feet were gross. It was, it, it, one midrash, it's a midrash is a Jewish teaching, said that not even a slave could do the act of foot washing. It was thought to be beneath most slaves to actually perform this act. Why? Well, you've probably heard this, right? They wore sandals everywhere. Not a lot of paved streets back then. Animals mingling around in the streets with with. The, there is excrement on the, on the ground, and you walking in it, you, you, it, it was just dirty. There was nothing to cover your feet fully back then, so feet were dirty. Thing. You, could walk, you could take a shower or a bath and then walk outside your home, and your feet immediately become filthy. This is why it was an activity that was reserved for not even slaves necessarily. And there's one commentator said, uh, commentator Bruner, in his commentary, he says that there's no record of a person of superior status voluntarily washing the feet of someone of inferior status. This is mind-blowing. This is completely flipping things upside down. He goes on in his commentary to say that Jesus' act represents an assault on the usual notions of social hierarchy, a subversion of the normal categories of honor and shame. Jesus is flipping everything upside down here like he always does. I want to go back when he says in in, in verse 4, it says he lay aside his outer garment. So he's wearing what he normally wears. He stands up and he takes off his normal clothes and wraps a towel around himself. Jesus is intentionally taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a slave. He takes off those clothes, 
puts on a towel that a normal servant would wear, and he begins to wash the feet. Even the way Jesus is dressed, he's communicating something here. God, Jesus goes from the throne room of, throne room of heaven, incarnates himself, goes into human form, Right? That's mind-blowing in and of itself, but this shows us he not only stops with just engaging humans, he goes to the lowest possible point of humanity, their feet. He not only comes to earth as a human, but he stoops all the way down, gets on his knees, and begins to wash dirty human feet. This is our Lord and Savior. He's acting out that famous part in, in, in Philippians chapter 2, right? This, 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 this uh, passage in, in, in Philippians 2 that was probably a, a, a hymn that was used in the early church that they would sing and recite when they gathered for worship. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, this is kind of the part of the, the hymn starts, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is acting out this passage in Philippians 2 here. So he's going around to disciple by disciple washing their feet. Then in verse 6 it says, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord... Do you wash my feet? Like, really? You're really going to wash my feet? Verse 7, Jesus answered him, What am I doing? What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you're going to understand. And we're going to come back to that, that, that verse there because that's key in this passage. Verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me, or you do not belong to me, Jesus is saying. Now, Peter is emphatic in verse 8. When you read the original language there, this is, this is emphatic. This is, there's emphasis here. Peter is vehemently saying, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus. This is not going to happen. Maybe some false humility there. Maybe he sees no need for him to be washed. Like, he's not dirty enough for someone like this to stoop so low to wash their feet. And many of us would probably feel the same way if we were in Peter's situation, right? If, if a mentor of ours, if kind of a hero of ours in the faith maybe started to wash your feet out of nowhere, you'd be like, no, 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 no. What, what are you doing? What are you, you're not, you're not going to do this, right? Don't do this. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So we see our first point here. Jesus serves his disciples. Jesus is giving us a master class in theology. He's, he's showing us by living it out who he is. That he is God and he has incarnated himself to live among human beings to save them. He's serving his followers. 
But his instruction doesn't stop there, right? He, he talks about theology. Now he's going to move into ethics. He doesn't pull apart the two. He keeps theology and ethics together. He now introduces um, the ethical command here based off of what he has just taught them. Right? Ethics meaning how we act based, based off theology, who God is. Right? So now he's going to get into the ethics. Uh, number two, point two, Jesus has served his disciples. Now he calls them to do the same. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. Now back to the clothes imagery here, right? So he's done with the towel, right? We're assuming he takes the towel off and then he puts his normal clothes back on. And John even says this little phrase, he resumed his place, right? So he's kind of brought down low, taking the form of a servant here, washing their feet, and then he makes this clear line where he puts on back his normal clothes and he resumes his place, probably at the table, but also in stature, right? Okay, now it's the Messiah, the Lord, the soon-to-be king speaking to them. And then Jesus says this, do you understand, verse 12, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. Like Jesus know who he, no, he knows who he is. He knows he has this authority. Verse 13, you call me teacher, Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, there's the first command we see. You ought. There's no getting around this. It's a clear command. You ought to do this. Now, it's not literally we should go around and wash each other's feet. If it was, the, the New Testament, would ha, Jesus would have instituted a sacrament or an ordinance, like baptism, communion. These are things that Jesus clearly says, you need to continue to do these things. This is part of church life. He doesn't necessarily make this into an ordinance. It's symbolic of the manner and the posture that we should have towards one another, how we should serve one another. There's an expectation that, that this would be our way of life as disciples, that this would be how we treat one another. Notice also Jesus doesn't say, and this, this would make sense, right? If Jesus says, hey, I've washed your feet, now you ought to wash my feet. You ought to serve me in that way. That makes total sense for Jesus to say that, but he doesn't do that. He automatically goes to one another. He says, I've washed your feet, now you ought to wash one another's feet. And there's so much wisdom in this that I just kind of picked up this week in studying this that if he would have said, you ought to now serve me, now, now we're back in Jesus' debt. Like we have to do something now in response to what he's done to us. And that is not the gospel. Right? Can you imagine like even these disciples here, and we're guilty of it, they're already fighting and, and kind of leveraging and trying to be the second in command of Jesus. We see that in the gospels. Imagine if Jesus set it up, a, well, now let's see who can be the best servant among you. Who's going to wash my feet the best? Who's going to be the first to, to get on their knees and wash my feet? Those disciples have been tripping over themselves, at least 11 of the 12, trying to get to Jesus' feet just to show how awesome they are. And we would probably be no different as well. We would turn this into a performance. So there's so much wisdom in Jesus saying, just kind of skipping that and saying, you ought to wash one another's feet. Right? We did need to repay him. Verse 15, for I've given you an example that you, should, that you also should do as I have just done to you. See that should again, right? Another command. We see ought in verse 14, should in verse 15. Then we get a truly, truly in verse 16, right? We know that's a, that's a cue to pay attention. He's saying, listen, truly, truly, right? I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, 
nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, right? The, the imperatives here just scream that this is a, should be a normal part of our discipleship. If you're going to profess faith in Jesus, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, this must be a part of your life. Your life should be one that's marked by serving, that's marked by laying down your life for others. And we see this as, as Jesus moves towards the cross, we begin, we actually saw it in chapter 12, but this beginning of, of what theologians call the cruciform life or the cross-centered life that Jesus is calling us to live. In, in chapter 12, we saw that Jesus says that unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it will not produce fruit. So fruit comes through death, he's teaching us in John 12. And we also remember him saying in, in other gospels, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Cross being an instrument of death. Deny yourself, deny, die to your preferences and follow me. And Jesus is acting this out now in John 13. We're to take up our cross and follow him. Everything is ramping up to the cross, starting here, chapter 13. Verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You know, we're going to look more at this paragraph next week because it can, connects to our passage next week. But again, he's re reassuring his disciples that he knows he's going to be betrayed. Don't catch, don't let you, don't, he's saying to his disciples, don't let this catch you off guard. I know what's going to happen. It's part of God's plan. Now, what does this look like? Right, what does this look like to serve one another, right? Because, again, it's not, the, it's not literal that we should be going around washing each other's feet, although that's not, like, off the table, right? But it's the posture. It's what does this mean, right? So um, I, I feel like as, a, as the pastor of this church, I can say we do this, we do this very, very well as a church. Like, I'm not standing up here today just, just convicted that we don't do this well as a church, I assure you. We do this really well. And I'm going to highlight a few examples from our body of, that I think of, of people who do this well. And there's always a danger in doing this because I can mention a lot of names and I can go on for hours and hours and hours and tell stories. But I want to mention a few names just to show what I think what everyday this could look like in our everyday um, community. Um, I'm going to mention names here. So um, if these people are here, then um, they're probably going to be uncomfortable. But this is a good kind of discomfort. Um, so uh, first, first person I think of when I think of, of, of kind of this posture and how we love one another is Taryn Wagner. I don't know if Taryn's here today, but Taryn Wagner um, happens to know a lot about cars, right? And I don't know if a lot of people in our church know a lot about cars, how to fix vehicles, right? But Taryn has fixed and helped so many, more people than I even know, help them with their vehicles. Used, their, used his time and effort to do this, right? And, and just, I heard something this past week of Taryn, like, like going, like spending his Saturday, all day Saturday and all day Sunday on two different cars of people in our church. His two days off, he's spending, using his gifts, using his talents to actually help, one, help other people in the church, Free of charge, not charging anything, not asking for anything, right? So much so that we, I used to have, we used to have an old car, um, um, the uh, a Nissan Hatchback Versa, uh, rest in peace, Versa. 
beautiful car, amazing car. I barely fit in it. Um, I looked funny riding around in it like a clown car. Um, but one day, it, 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 we had some major issues with the hubcaps. Like, couldn't keep them on. Like, I was taping them to, there's those little snap-on hubcaps, cheap. Anyway, um, if, I, if, you, if, you, if you see a Versa out, look at the hubcaps. They're probably missing one, not made well. So any, anyway, um, I, I, uh, after a, a while of this, I walk out from church one day. This is during church. I walk out, and I've got four new hubcaps, right? Like, Taryn didn't put spinners on those things, thankfully. He didn't do anything like that. But he put nice hubcaps that wouldn't pop off. And I didn't know who did it for weeks. For weeks, I could not figure out who did it. He didn't, say, he didn't let anybody know. He just did it. And I had four new hubcaps. Later on, I found out that it was Taryn. So Taryn is awesome at this. Another story I heard last week, and it doesn't surprise me because I've seen her do this, is, is Sarah Howard. I know Sarah's not here today, um, but uh, Sarah Howard, um, who serves in our, in our kids' area, she's, she's up here during the week. I know she helps Kaylee a lot. She's babysat for us. But um, last weekend, um, I know um, Jay, uh, Jay was um, helping um, perform the um, he was speaking at Bristol um, Andrews um, Celebration of Life service, right? Big day, heavy day. Jay is about to, five minutes before this starts, Jay's about to speak. And Jay's Scarlet um, proceeds to get a stomach bug right at the same time and begins throwing up at their table right before all of this is about to happen. And Brooke's kind of getting stuff together, like, okay, Jay's, Jay's speaking, so Brooke's got to, she's going to take her home. Well, Sarah's there, and Sarah's like, I've got it. Doesn't even let Brooke give her an answer. I've got it. Takes a, a baby with a, a little girl with throw up all over her, right? Risks getting sick. Takes her home in her car. Takes her back to, the, to, to, to Jay and Brooke's house and takes care of her. Cleans her up while they get to stay and do what they needed to do at this celebration of life service. Just beautiful, like off the cuff. No, I got this. No, you don't, you don't even get a say in this. I'm taking her home, and I'm going to deal with the throw up why you guys get to stay and do what you need to do. Last uh, couple I mentioned, I know they're here, and I'm going to embarrass them, but Gus and Renata Acevedo, um, I've got to watch them in gospel community for the last three or four years, and they do so much behind the scenes here that you don't even see. Renata's up here two or three times a week doing something to make this place function better. Um, Gus can do multiple things in the church. He's always ready to jump in and serve anytime you ask him. Um, all the kids in our, our, our gospel community call them aunt and uncle because they've watched kids so much in our um, community free of charge right? Like, this is just what they do. They're, they're, they're known as servants, right? Again, I've, I've mentioned uh, people here, and, and, and again, many of you have done things like this, but I just wanted to share these stories because they motivate me. They encourage me. They excite me that we have people who are members of this church who are living this out, and it should be exciting for us to hear these stories and to kind of allow these folks to, set, to pay set for us and be a good examples for us. All this being said, this is going to cost us something. It's going to cost. In all these examples I shared, it costs time, it costs money, it costs comfort, it costs uh, sometimes materially, it costs money. A lot of things could, could be lost if you decide to serve in this way. And we need to count the costs. We need to be aware of that. So this brings us to our last point. How do we serve like this? How do we do it, right? Like, we just go, hey, let's go try hard. Go try hard. Be good people. Go serve, right? And... and, and we could leave it there, but that would just put us all under this weight of guilt and shame because we, most of us 
are feeling a little guilty right now, probably, right? Like, oh, I need to do more, or I could have done this, or I thought of this, right? And Jesus doesn't want us to, to be in that position. Listen to what Dane Ortland says about Jesus. This is in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Jesus did not retain something for himself the way we tend to do when we seek to love others sacrificially. He does not love like us. We love until we are, we love until we are betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite the betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. Right? So again, we, we, we tend to, I, I'm as guilty of anybody as this, right? If, if it's con, oftentimes convenient, I'll serve. If it fits into my schedule, I'll serve. If it just kind of stands there and hits me in the face, I'll serve. But I'm not oftentimes looking to serve. I'm not praying, hey, God, will you show me opportunities to lay down my life in small ways for people? My schedule, what I'm, what I'm going to do that day, my task list, those things tend to come to mind first, and what do other people need? And even when I do some, serve someone, it's usually uh, sometimes it's, it's the person that I'm in good standing with, right? It's not the, someone who's this, the person who's just walked out of my life. It's not the person who betrayed me. It's not the person who um, I, I know has been gossiping about me. No. It's, it's like that, that's, that's hard. That's next level. I, I, I probably won't think to serve that person. But again, Jesus has given us the example. He served. He, he washed the feet of Judas in this moment. Okay? Now, I want to go back to verse 7. Like I said before, this is the verse. This is the verse in this passage that helps us and begins to empower us to live like this. This is Jesus answering Peter. What, am I, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Now, Jesus would not have said this if there wasn't a deeper meaning to what he was doing. Yes, he was giving us an example, but why would he say to Peter, you don't understand this? It's not hard to understand what Jesus was doing, right? He was washing feet. It doesn't make it easy to do, but it was straightforward. He's washing feet. He, it's, it's an amazing act of service. But he says, there's something deeper here. There's more going on, and you're not going to know it until after the cross, until after the resurrection. You see, Jesus went to the cross taking the sin and shame upon himself, and then rising on the third day, conquering sin, Satan, and death, and ascending back to heaven. He took his rightful place on the throne, and that's the gospel. And what he's telling Peter is, you don't understand all the pieces of the gospel here. Once you do, you'll know what I'm asking you to do, and you'll be empowered to be able to do those things. There's really two aspects of the gospel that we can hold on to that help empower us in this way. One, we're cleansed. You can see that symbolism all through this. We're cleansed, right? He's washing our feet, right? He says, tells Peter, you have no part with me unless you allow me to wash your feet. You have no relationship with me, right? Isaiah 53, 5 says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions, Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Through his death, through the blood shed on the cross, he heals us. He brings us into right relationship with him. He pays the penalty for our sin. Number one, that's the second thing he does in this. He frees us from the power of sin that sin has on our lives. We no longer have to be controlled by sin because of what he did. John 12, um, a few weeks ago, we saw this verse. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about the, 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 the enemies, the principalities and powers. Right? He's saying the, the Satan will be removed. 
The power of sin no longer has to have control over you. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed, there it is again, the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Jesus takes the penalty of our sin and he takes the power that sin has over us away from us. So we can serve people. So we can serve people without any strings attached. We can serve our enemies. We can serve people who will betray us. We can serve people that, 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 that maybe don't like us. We can serve when it's not convenient. Why? Because of the gospel. Because of what Jesus did. Not because we're good people or we need to try hard or we need to put this on our, on our religious resume. No, we serve because he has first served us. But we're prone to miss this like Peter, right? Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. What's Peter saying there? He doesn't, he doesn't realize how dirty he is. Again, we're thinking about sin here, right? Peter's saying, I'm not, I'm not dirty enough for someone like you to wash my feet. We do the same thing, right? Maybe some of you are in this room and you're not followers of Jesus and you think that maybe you're, you're not that dirty, right? You're not sinful enough or you're not as bad as other people. I'm a pretty good person. I haven't done anything really bad. These people are worse than I am. What you're saying right then is what Peter said. No, I don't need you to be, I don't need to be washed. I'm good. I've got this. I'm pretty good morally. None of us are good morally, the scripture says, compared to God. We all need God's grace. But Peter also flips, right? He flips to, okay, if you're going to wash me, just keep washing me. Wash all of me. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. It's not like that. It's once and for all. So some of us more religious types keep going back to the cross, we keep performing. We keep saying, well, maybe Jesus' death wasn't enough. Maybe I need to do more. Maybe I need to add to the gospel. Maybe I need to, to do all these religious things to make sure God still loves me. And Jesus would say, based off of what he told Peter, no, 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 no. I've washed your feet. You're good. We don't need to keep coming back over and over and over. You don't need to keep punishing yourself over and over for the things you've done if you're a follower of Jesus. He has died for you. He has taken your place once and for all period. It is finished. It is done. We can rest in his grace. We can rest in that. And that's what he's trying to communicate to Peter here. So we can avoid the gospel in two ways based off of how Peter did. Again, our, the main idea here is Jesus gives us one of the greatest acts of humility, so we will go and do likewise. There's two layers here. There's the example but then there's the power that's found in the gospel symbolism that he's given us, because he knows where this is going, right? He's, get, he's, he's washed their feet, but a, a, a time is coming in the next few hours where they're going to see Jesus give up his life, his very life for their sake. Listen to John Bunyan say this about um, Jesus and his death. It is common for equals to love and for superiors to be beloved. But for the king of princes, for the son of God, for Jesus Christ to love man thus, this is amazing. And that's so much more that for that man, the object of his love is so low, so mean, so vile, so undeserving, and so inconsiderable as by the scriptures everywhere he is described to be. John's saying this is what the scriptures say about sinful man and how we compare to God. He goes on. He is called God, the king of glory. But the persons of him, beloved, are called transgressors, sinners, enemies, dust and ashes, fleas, worms, shadows, vapors, vile, filthy, sinful, unclean, ungodly fools, madmen. These are all descriptors that the scripture gives of us. Okay? It doesn't take away our human dignity, doesn't take away our value, but in comparison morally to God, this is how we compare. 
And he continues, and now is it not to be wondered at? And are we not to be affected here with saying, and will you set your eye upon such a one? Like, will you really die for us in this way? But how much more when he will set his heart upon us? Like, how much more do we love him and want to serve him and we want to serve others when we remember who we were when Jesus died for us? We didn't love him. We didn't want him. We weren't living morally perfect lives. Scripture says we were his enemies, and yet he still died for us, the same way he washes Judas's feet. So the way the world's going to be changed, here's the, the, the charge going forward. The way we're going to change the world is not by being cool, not by winning the culture war, not by blowing someone up on Twitter to make us look better, not by bragging about our effectiveness or our accomplishments, not by getting as many likes as we can on social media, not by putting on our mask and pretending to be someone we're not and being better than we really are. That is not how the world's going to be changed. The way the world is going to be changed is through humility. It's through humility. It's through realizing that I need God's grace, and that grace is found in Jesus, and he's given me a clear way to live out um, our lives based off of that grace. Two points of application. We go to the upper room with Jesus. We remember that moment. We, remember, we put ourselves in the place of those closest disciples, and we, we feel, I know that may be a scary word for some of you, but we feel how the disciples would have felt when Jesus was washing their feet. And then all the symbolism we know now, living on this side of the cross and on this side of the resurrection, we go back there. We realize what Jesus has done on our behalf. Second thing, we look for ways to serve one another. And we encourage one another through serving. We set examples for one another in how we serve each other in the body. We tell stories, like I've done a little bit today, about us being served by others or how we've seen others serve other people. This is why gospel community life is so important. Right? Um, all three examples today were all um, that I gave the people weren't necessarily on a Sunday morning. Right? They were all just as we build relationships in everyday life and saw basic needs and met them. That doesn't mean we need to serve here. Right? That should go without saying. Right? We should serve here. We should serve the body, serve the church. If you're members here, find your place and serve like Jesus did. But I think it goes beyond um, that. It goes beyond living in, in a community of people and looking for opportunities to serve. I want to close with this poem from Brian Wren. He just communicates and encapsulates everything we've talked about today. That he has served us so we can serve others. Great God in Christ you call our name. And receive us as your own. Not through some merit, right, or claim, but by your gracious love alone. We strain to glimpse your mercy seat and find you kneeling at our feet. Then take the towel and break the bread and humble us and call us friends. Suffer and serve till all are fed and show how grandly love attends, to work till all creation sings, to fill all worlds, to crown all things. Let's pray. Father, the first thing we need to say after reading a passage today is thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that you've shown sinners in this room, which all of us at least once were. We're all once living apart from you and had no relationship with you. But even at our worst, you died for sinners.
and we're thankful for that. I pray for people in this room maybe who don't have a relationship with you that they would see your love, they would see your grace, they would see how you handle power differently than the rest of the world and that they would be moved to profess faith. They would be moved to say, yes, I want to follow you. Yes, I believe you. Yes, I want, your, I want to receive your grace and mercy. I pray that would, would happen right now. I pray that we would see Jesus' example and that we, would, that we would live it. We would remember the gospel and remember that, that, that sin has no power over us. The, the narcissism, the selfishness, the, the, the wanting to be right, the, the, the wanting to win arguments all the time. I pray that we would set that aside because sin has no power over us. And through the Spirit, we can love with no strings attached. We can serve with no strings attached. Help us. Help us by your Spirit remember that because we can't do it apart from you. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.